my dear best friend, uh, who was also called Michael, he said mm. to me, what do you want to do with your life? It would right. do with your life. Uh, and out it came. I want to speak up for the poor and I want to bend the power of the prosperous to the potential of the poor. And I've never changed it since then. And that's become the living mantra of, of every single day. Building relationships that matter in the long arc of life and with those who are enabled or ennobled or empowered, which I was not, I'm just me, but building those relationships allows me to leverage opportunity for others. Welcome to another episode of Reenchanting, the podcast from Seen and Unseen. You can, as ever, find us on seenandunseen.com. I am Belle Tyndall. And I'm Justin Briley. And if you're watching this on YouTube, please do like and subscribe. And if you're listening to it via podcast, please do rate us. It just helps everyone, more people, to find Reenchanting. As usual, we are recording here at Lambeth Palace Library, overlooking the Houses of Parliament, uh, which means today's guest didn't have to come far to join us. Uh, He is Lord Hastings of Scarisbrick. He's an independent life peer in the House of Lords. And Michael has had a career working in business, education and international development. He's helped companies, multinationals, public institutions in corporate responsibility and leadership. He's also an advocate for racial justice and urban renewal. Uh, He's currently uh, the chairman of SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies in London, and a professor of leadership at the Huntsman Business School in the USA. So yeah, it's a, that's quite the bio, isn't it, Mel? It is, and I feel like even then we're probably only scratching the surface. Yeah, you only mentioned one line. <laughs> uh, so just the other thing to note is that Michael's faith has been a huge part of his work and his life. And so today we're going to chat about, in an increasingly secular world, how can we, how should we um, bring faith into the conversation of politics and public life? Yeah. It's and great to have it you. It's lovely to be here. Yes. Um, great view, of course. Everyone wants this backdop. Absolutely. <laughs> we're, we're so lucky to be able to record here yeah. uh, overlooking Parliament, which is, of course, where you work on a week-to-week basis. That's right. Before we get into that, because I'd love to know what the average day for a parliamentarian and a lord is, um, we do film this at the top of the Lambeth Library. Yes. So tell us what you're reading at the moment. So I'm halfway through a book called Live Life in Crescendo, Your Best Years Are Still Ahead of You, Mm. which when you're my old age at 65, (laughs) well, actually 66, my best years better be ahead of me. Who knows? Uh, And it's written by Stephen R. Covey, who Mm. is now uh, somewhat past, and Cynthia Covey, who was his daughter. So he started the book before he died. And, of course, Stephen R. Covey was the great author of The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Mm. Started the book, he then died, and his daughter, Cynthia Covey, finished it. And she gave me an an authored copy of the book at the Huntsman Business School a year ago. How special. Very special. So is that the kind of book that someone who fears perhaps their best years are behind them, that it would would be worth picking up and reading? Very, very much so, because the, the heart of it is that if we are accumulating knowledge, experience, wisdom, if we're growing in understanding if we also should be growing not in becoming more stilted and awkward as we get older but in becoming more fluid and flexible because we know more people Mm. and we should be loving more greatly than Mm. we've ever done before Mm. so if that is the case the best is possible ahead of us rather Mm. than I've Mm. done my years I'm now pruning the garden (laughs) it has got to be about I, I have opportunity and freedom 
and flexibility, the older I get, mm. to invest more, to create more, to give more, to empower more, to support more, to love more, to care more. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful stuff. You are a... Uh a lifelong peer at the House of Lords. Yeah, well, I, I wasn't g- born in it. <laughs> no. <laughs> or born into it. <laughs> You're really uh, out in my ignorance when it comes to... <laughs> um, I keep wanting to turn around to point at it, but that will really affect the mic, so I won't. But can you give us a little glimpse? Because I'm so curious, and as you point out, a little bit ignorant. What does life look like? What's the average day? What does the average don't day look say, like? <laughs> the av- I don't... I, I never have an average day. Um, sure. because we, we do have a lot of wonderful members in the House of Lords who seriously dedicate themselves mm. day in, day out, week in, week out to the tough business of legislation and all the regulatory issues and the changes in legislation required. I dip in and out of that. I vote okay. accordingly to what I understand, not to what I don't understand. Mm. I don't participate in things I don't know anything about. So I actively participate in the themes that deeply matter to me the most. So a lot of my day is taken up with meeting people who come in from outside with a sense of, wow. So I I, I work with a lot of ex-offenders and people who've gone through tough times in their lives. And I love to bring them into Parliament and give them the tour of the palatial parts and show them around the chambers and give them breakfast as I did this morning or have them for lunch and help them to feel that this very special place, which is a World Heritage Site, but is a place of vibrant debate and conversation and communication Mm. and transformation, because after all, the things we decide over there change people's lives very directly and very immediately, but help them to see that they have as equal opportunity to come in and participate as I did Mm. and to feel it's their house, not just an elite group. So that gives us a sense of of what it's all about. Um, My teenage son, Noah, wanted to ask, do you get to put Lord on your passport? (laughs) (laughs) Well, in fact, yes, I... Well, I don't put it on my passport. The passport office puts it on my passport. (laughs) But but yes, it, it actually says on my passport, right honourable... Lord Hastings of Scarisbrick, CBE. So it puts the whole thing. And, and the reason it does that is because when you, when you receive the honour from now the king or previously the queen in my case uh, of becoming a life peer, a lord in the House of Lords, you actually change your name. Mm. So oh, your legal name changes. Wow. And, and you change your status as right. well. And, um, and it's hard to explain to people that, what that transformation in practice Means, I mean, you know, I, I, I sometimes get asked at airports, "Oh my gosh, you should have come to the front of the queue." And to which I say, "I don't think so. I might have been mobbed." Uh, by, by that, the that was an American accent. You, you yeah, yeah. Well, you could, you could. Not that I was suggesting that Americans no, no, no. don't, but you know, whatever. Uh, and and I, I have a wonderful story. My youngest son, uh, many years ago, uh, said, "Dad, what class are we? What class are we?" He rang up from school. I said, why do you want to know? He said, well, all the, all the boys are asking which class are people. Are they middle class, working class? Are they whatever? So I said, well, what class do you think we are, darling? And he said, well, we're working class, aren't we? And I said, unfortunately not. <laughs> because, it's, it's because my title means that we're sort of aristocratic. Mm. He goes, no, I don't want that. I'm going to be working <laughs> so embarrassing when your dad's in the house of law I know, yeah. I know. Said, so I said to him well what do, you, what do you tell 
what do you tell your friends about, about me? He said, I tell them you sell tractors. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Wow. Is there any semblance? It no, no, not, none not at all. No, no. Okay, just, great. No, no. Come it up just with something. to level up. Yourself. Wow, yeah. that's amazing. I love it. I love it. Yeah. I mean, take us back to your, your early days growing up. What, what was life like? I know that your, your childhood was spent, was spent between the UK and Jamaica. Um, yes. I guess you never had any inclination to becoming a lord at a young age but but what thought never occurred to me yeah no my you know my parents were both they were obviously both wonderful my father died in a as a result of a car accident when I was 16 my mother died in 2010 as a result of just old age Mm. um they were both wonderful a man and woman of great faith they were so insistent that when they died there should be no place of a memorial to them so there is no gravestone. Right. There is no marker. Mm. And if I were to go there now, I wouldn't be able to find where they're buried. Sure. And they both insisted that they had to be buried in the cheapest possible coffins, no time wasted, no flowers and no fuss. Mm. <laughs> and the reason for that is because they were both absolutely convinced that they were going from life to eternal life. Mm. And therefore, what on earth are you wasting time occupying this space with expensive paraphernalia? Give it to the <laughs> poor. And that genuinely. So that was how I was brought up, that you don't need fuff and fluss and all of mm. that business and don't you know when jesus said let the dead bury their own dead they genuinely took that very seriously mm. today is a day of being physically here today tomorrow is a day of being physically with he who is lord so don't make a fuss between on the gateway right. just pass through and i think growing up with that emphasis helped me to treat life with a lightness which is very you know, really drilling on the important things that matter the most and do not hang on to religious ritual that doesn't matter in any specific way. I only really, despite my fact my father was an elder in the Presbyterian Church, my mother was a sort of deacon, if that's the right word, in the uh, Anglican Church, the mm. Church of Jamaica, as it was called. Um, I never really found living faith because of them, mm. because they were quite formal. And it was only when my brother, who now lives in the United States, had gone to the same school as me, to Scarisbrick Hall School, and he had discovered a living faith in Jesus, came home, 1972, first year, came back, and, uh, and my father said, asked him to pray over our dinner, and he prayed, he talked <laughs> to Jesus. And I'd never heard talking to Jesus. I'd only heard <laughs> reading. Yes. Uh, And as a result of that, talking to Jesus, I was so curious. Mm. And it took me probably about four weeks of pursuing him round over the summer 1972 till eventually, 28th of August at 2.30 in the afternoon on a hilltop walk in Bogue Heights, Montego Bay, I gave my life to follow Jesus, which is only the beginning because following Jesus is an everyday Mm. step. Mm. Not a stride. It's not a marathon. Mm. It's a step every single day. Mm. And that was just the beginning of wow. that step. Wow. That's quite the story. That's <laughs> <laughs> and quite the, quite the visual as well, being yes. on a hilltop there. Yes. Um, you mentioned Scarisbrick, which yes. obviously is part of your title. It's the Scarisbrick Hall, is that yes. correct? The school you went to. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about those years, the, the years that you spent there and how they formed the person you became leaving Scarisbrick Hall? Yes. Well, the wonderful thing about the friendships made at Scarisbrook Hall mm. and and in particular the person who was our head of English or the English teacher wonderful man called John Sutton Smith who still lives now and I think it's twice a year maybe three he'll probably tell me off if I say three in a year and he says anyway twice a year I think <laughs> at least we still get a newsletter mm. from John sent to home and 
all of us who were quotes in the, what we call then the sort of Christian fellowship then, right. he keeps us all up to date. So that's from 1976. Mm. I mean, Gosh. you weren't even around. No. <laughs> No, I, not even a thought. No, wow. years 1976. That, that, that's a remarkable sort of devotion, though, isn't it? Oh, he's a wonderful man. And mm. you know, the first thing. So I, my brother and I arrived. Well, my brother had been at the school a year earlier than me, and I arrived uh, September uh, 1972. And the first, um, let's call it Christian Fellowship meeting. I don't, I don't remember it being called Christian Fellowship, but the first, first like Bible study meeting we went, I went to, and John who was, had this sharp voice, pointed at me and the others who were new. Uh, he said, he said, he actually said, because we were boys then, boy, <laughs> he really felt, mm, mm, mm. <laughs> boy, you will learn that the devil lives in your duvet. <laughs> so if you want your life, if you want your life and your faith to matter, get up in the morning. Oh, okay. Exactly. <laughs> that could have gone anywhere. <laughs> You were worrying then, weren't you? A little bit. The politically correct bit of you was going, oh my gosh. <laughs> so and he was saying, essentially, make your life, make, make the hours, make the minutes, mm. make the days count. Mm. And that habit of, I mean, I'm not perfect, for goodness sakes, but the habit of seeking to get mm. up mm. most mornings mm. at five o'clock in the morning, gosh. I still do to this wow. day. Impressive. Amazing. Yeah. Which is why I look so old. I'm really 23, but it's, <laughs> <laughs> the years have worn me away. That's amazing. I, I love. I love that. And it sounds as though that headmaster had quite a significant impact on possibly oh, your own spiritual pro- journey as well. Profoundly. Well, he the, the headmaster is a wonderful man called Charles Oxley. Mm. Dear, 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 great man. And he had framed that school and the other school, Tower College, which was the two. Um, boarding schools that he had and and he had two day schools as well and when I was in my sort of 16 17 18 age uh, I used to he he offered to read the bible to me (laughs) so I used to go and read the bible with him in his office on a Saturday night every other weekend when he would be there at the school because he was at the other school at the alternate weekend Mm. and then he would be there and his wife was at you know they would alternate Uh, and so I actually got tutored beautifully in Understanding the scriptures and understanding the world beyond Gosh. as a result of his immense kindness mm. and generosity. Wow. Can I? I've been doing a little bit of homework <laughs> as is professional. Did you do it at school? <laughs> <laughs> Not as much as I should have, ah. maybe. Um, but a little bit of homework on you. And I, I, I think it was in a different podcast, or it might have been your TED talk, I'm not sure, but you quote your 16 year old self, and I don't know, um, where when asked what you wanted to do, ah, what you wanted to be. Yes. And you said, even at the age of 16, I want to speak for the poor. And then yes. there's an added bit. Have you added that since, or was that? No, no, I said it, I said it all in one sentence at 16. Wow, do you want to so, say it for uh, the yes. podcast? Yes, well, my, my dear best friend, uh, who was also called Michael, he said mm. to me, what do you want to do with your life? It would right. do with your life. Uh, and out it came. I want to speak up for the poor, and I want to bend the power of the prosperous to the potential of the poor. Mm. And I've never changed it since then. And that's become the living mantra of, of every single day. Mm. So, I, and of course, I get to speak up for the poor in Parliament, but I also speak up for the poor as a vice president of UNICEF, as the 
chairman of the Council of Zane, which is Zimbabwe, a national emergency charity, as an ambassador for Tear Fund, uh, as a governor for an academy school in Nairobi in Kenya, a multiple array of involvements across the continent of Africa and the Caribbean. So I get, a, I get to speak up for the poor practically as well mm. as politically as well as theoretically. And then the bit about bending the power of the prosperous, is I, I didn't understand what that meant at 16, but I discovered as the years went by that if, I, if, if, if as a result of working in business or connections to business or just connections, mm. I could get to know mm. powerful, prosperous people the way the world sees it, yeah. then I could persuade them to empower the poor. Mm. But you've got to know them. Mm. And I realized that actually uh, building relationships that matter in the long arc of life and with those who are enabled or ennobled or empowered, which I was not, I'm just me, but building those relationships allows me to leverage opportunity mm. for others. And I've seen that, I mean, pff, thousands of examples of how that has worked out mm. over the decades. I have to be naming them millionaires and billionaires, and I don't want to name them. Sure. I, 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 obviously, your faith is obviously been crucial the impetus for that, crucial yeah. to that. To, to what extent in the public life that you occupy in Parliament, in the business settings that you're around, do you find other people have a similar faith, or, or are you a bit of an outlier in this respect? Some do and some don't. Um, you know, I... I I've always believed that we we should we should manifest our faith. Mm. We shouldn't have a manifesto of our faith. Oh. What's the difference? Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, a manifesto is a statement of um, will and intention. And now we know political parties give us manifestos mm -hmm. at elections, and mm. then. Are, are we always fully satisfied? <laughs> Do they deliver? Or <laughs> Do they yeah. deliver? Yeah. So you see, manifestos are promises without necessarily having outcomes. Mm -hmm. But to manifest is to do what Jesus said. Let your light mm. shine so clearly mm. before others that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. In other words, don't do the speaking mm. unless necessary. Right. Do the manifesting. Do the being. Is it that sort of St. Francis of Assisi thing of... Uh, preach the gospel everywhere you go if necessary use words it, precisely that yeah. precisely that I mean to give you a very vivid example so you know as you know I, I, I have a huge commitment to working in prisons and currently our team we work in six prisons at the moment now a lot of um, people who are believers Christians believers will say to me prison ministry and I'll say no hmm. it's not prison but we, we do not go into prisons and sing at people <laughs> We do not go into prisons and read the Bible to people. We do not go into prisons and wave our hands around at people. We don't pray over people. We don't do that. We befriend. Okay. Because Jesus said, when I was in prison, you visited me. Mm -hmm. He didn't say you prayed for me or, or brought the Bible to me. Or sang to me. Or sang to me. I'm sure or, that would be lovely if you did, Michael. But well, I, I, I wouldn't think so. I could <laughs> sing now, and I think that would chatter. But I think that different. You see, the difference is, mm. and I'm yes. not objecting to people who want to do mm. quotes, prison ministry but what i would say to them is why do you do what jesus said you shouldn't do mm. why don't you just do what he said you should do he said visit with people. take time to know people 
here is one of the most painful statistics about our modern justice or injustice life in the United Kingdom. And this is a Home Office figure, so I haven't made this up. Mm. And this was a figure from 2021. And it was obviously looking back over the previous decade. And it, what it shows is that for men, the majority of people in prison are men, mm. out of the 88,000, 84,000 are men. Uh, uh, for the majority of men in prison who are serving sentences longer than somewhere between three to four years, only f- only 9% ever get a visit. Wow. So that means, in effect, 91% of men are abandoned mm. at the gates of so-called justice. Left alone for 10 years, 12 years, 15 years, 20 years, we have people we work with who are there for 38 years. Left alone. No wonder Jesus said, when I was in prison, you visited me. Because the visit, and what we do in visiting every two months, the visit brings light, hope, continuity, commitment, relationship, someone you know, a letter you write, an engagement, the possibility of a thought, probably an appeal, the consideration that you might be innocent, a whole series of options. If you don't visit people, you never Mm. know them. Mm. Now, that's the difference between manifesto and manifest. Right. Mm, yeah. yeah. I love how, I don't know, maybe it's a my generation thing, but there's a lot of sort of doom in the way we see things, you know? And we're worried about everything and we care deeply about everything. But the there end is, is constantly nigh. Constantly. Yes. There is this underlying sense of, oh, it's so big and I'm so small, what on earth am I going to do? And what I love is, that doesn't seem to be within you, or I might be misspeaking, but you seem to think, I can make a change. I'm obviously going to make that change. Yes. And that seems to have been within you since you were 16, since you said, I'm yes. going to bend, the, potential, uh, bend yes. the privilege to the potential. So we're, what would you say then to people who see these, who would hear a statistic like that from the Home Office, who, you know, see all these injustices and all of that, but for, for whatever reason, maybe it's because we've been taught to be that way, we don't see ourselves as any kind of solution, too small to be a solution. Mm. Well, all of us are, are, too big, are too big not to be a solution. Okay. In other words, what fills the space of the problem mm. should be our optimism. Right. We should be willing to step into the breach where things don't work and make them work. Mm. So I'll give you an example of that. I, I mean, it's something I'm so pleased I did in the end, but it set a pace. So the school I was... Uh, a teacher at was like most schools just had a dirty playground cans crisp packets graffiti general mess and to be perfectly candid the caretakers didn't care mm. and so the place was a mess and when I started teaching there in 1981 I think it was 80 I was shocked by the level of of disorder that was out there for kids to see day in day out but that reflected disorder from the inside mm. And I, I remember going to the caretakers and to the head saying, surely we could clean this place up and make it look decent. And the response was, the kids don't want to know. It's never, you know, they're not mm. interested. They just make the place a mess all the time. So I said, well, I'll do it. So I then went and got some of these, you know, what we used to call granny sticks, kind of pickup sticks. And, and some, I bought two big bins and a load of bin liners. And next morning, set about the school at 7 o'clock in the morning, cleaning it up myself. <laughs> and then the next day, I cleaned it up. Cleaned it. And it took about three weeks before a couple of kids noticed that I was there very early doing this and they joined me <laughs> so I got some more sticks and they joined and then a load more kids joined a load more kids joined before we knew where we are 
the place was constantly immaculate because all the kids are cleaning up and nobody wanted to drop anything. And the graffiti stopped and also the damage to toilet walls stopped and the damage to desks stopped and drawing on books stopped and all of that stuff stopped. And the place became collegiate, collaborative, warm and open. It took about a year to change the culture from carelessness into I care about who you are. And that's a small thing to do. You see, I could have just said, well, look, you know, who cares? The head says it isn't possible. The caretaker says it isn't possible. Just leave it. Do your job. Go home. Mm. I don't believe in that. If there's an opportunity for me to clean your driveway and mine and the one next door too, I better do all three. So, so that's why I said be, be a subject of optimism, mm. not a subject of pessimism. Yeah. When it comes to the faith that's obviously driven that aspect of your life mm. and that informs your public life here in Parliament mm. as well, I mean, as we look at this backdrop, we see church spires alongside, you know, the Elizabeth <laughs> Tower and the Victoria Tower and, and the Houses of Parliament. And yes. when you walk in there, you're surrounded by religious imagery. There's, right. there's Christian imagery everywhere. It's, 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 it's this huge mixture of, yeah. of secular public and religious life altogether. Yeah. How much? How hard is it now becoming to sort of join those two things together? I mean, just recently, Sandy Toxfig, you know, had a viral video criticising yeah. the fact that bishops still get a honorary place in the House of Lords. Um, that's been part of the fact of the, you know, the, the the establishment of the Church of England for a long time. But more and more, it feels like there's a tension there. Um, we're recording this just before the coronation and there's yet another sort of lots of questions around mm. the religious religiosity of that particular ceremony and so on. So what's your sense as an insider of, of how much that is an issue in Parliament, in the House of Lords, you know, the, the concerns that people like Sandy Toxvik have around that sort of thing? It's an issue for those who want to make it an issue. In practice, we love the bishops being there. You know, they are, they're referred to as the right reverend prelate, which is kind of a funny term. But anyway, there we go. And, uh, and whenever a bishop stands up in the middle of a debate, they have a preference. So even a preference over the front bench, because it's, it's a statement of respect for the role the bishops play in the uh, constitutional life of the United Kingdom close to the monarchy. And actually, they are hugely, significantly influential. And they contribute perspective either from a straight biblical point of view or just from the kind of wisdom of being older and thinking about the world and thinking about the wider world and understanding complexity. And so many bishops, as you know, like, for example, the current archbishop who was in the oil and gas industry, mm. so many bishops have mm. been in business yes. before they'd become a vicar, before they'd become a bishop. So they, br they bring a life of expertise into the chamber. I mean, is it a problem... It's only a problem if you want to make it a problem. Mm. You know, in all my years in Parliament, I haven't seen the religious institution inhibiting the progress of debate, conversation. I mean, the fact that the House of Commons, like we do in the House of Lords, mm. begins every day with prayer, and it's the chaplain to the speaker mm. in the Commons who prays for the MPs, they still go at each other <laughs> with with fearsome flight, and, and it is what it is. I mean, yes. we're not we're not as uncivilized as that in the House of Lords. We do we, we respect each other and speak kindly to each other. Unlike they, you have to be the speaker has to tone them down. But we're not like that. But the point is, you you can pray and you can have vigorous as Jesus mm. did mm. with those who are religious around him as Paul the Apostle did with those who are obstructively religious around him you can have vigorous debate and discussion mm. and pray and read the scriptures together now the one challenge I think that does come out of that is 
that the bishops who are present uh, have also the opportunity to be pastoral mm. because people have real lives. Mm. People lose wives and husbands and mm. sons and daughters. Death happens. I mean, especially in the House of Lords, we're closer mm. to it than anybody else. People lose relatives. They lose things that matter to them. Uh, you, you lose an animal that matters, a dog, mm. a horse. Mm. You want someone to go and share that experience with. Having a significant number of bishops around is a blessing, not, not a curse. Now, and because their input is authoritative and not ignorant, and they're well supported in doing that, they bring a huge measure of insight we would be poorer mm. without it but what does it say about the wider institutional issues now again a younger generation <laughs> looks on and seeing <laughs> seeing people in robes whether you know men or women in robes we wear robes black rod wears um, formal dress mm -hmm. in the house of lords uh, our attendants wear robes i mean we're, we're like the courts the courts they have wigs and robes there are parts of society which, to be candid, are not meant to be like the streets out there. Right. They have distinction mm. and difference. And actually, we need that distinction and difference. Not, not undue deference. Not, re not bowing for the sake of because you're told to. But mm. respect because distinction and position allows people to see the value of positive hierarchy. If somebody is further up the line than I am, of which there are vast numbers, mm. it is possible that they can help me stand up, hold my hand and help me stand up, help me see things differently, help me see things from a wider perspective, help me learn. That's the value of, and that's a biblical principle of the ages are meant to live together in common circle. Mm. And so a generation which is looking on wondering, what's the point of all of this? Mm should be saying, how can I learn from what mm. this has taught mm. society? Because actually, when you look around the so-called democratic world as we now see it, which is faltering mm. day in, day out, and it's faltering because the big thing that is missing at the core of our so-called de democratic institutions are people of truth and integrity, of clarity and certainty, of service, commitment and distinction because service matters more than my position. Yeah. And if we could restore the importance of that service to the court, that's, I mean, el elected members in the House of Commons are there to serve their constituents. We in the House of Lords are there to support their service of their constituents by the reframing of law. But we're also there to represent the best interests of yes. the Constitution and, of the United Kingdom, which is the Crown. And, and yet, it feels a bit like in the general public that people have become rather cynical, disenchanted yes. uh, with public life and politicians. Yes. Because there does seem to be a crisis of integrity. Yes. Um, you know, I'm not going to name names, but, you know, there are lots of recent events that, that I think have put a lot of people off the whole idea. So how do we even begin to address that, the fact that people have lost trust, essentially, in these institutions? There's a call on all of us to allow people to make mistakes to mm. falter and stand up again. And it's really important. This is the heart of our faith, is that we're all called to be reconciled to God from our position of inadequacy, our position of weakness, our position of failure, and our foolishness. And that God throws, as the scripture says, our sins as far as the east is from the west. So there's no, And there's no meeting point for that because we can't find it. Where does he hide our failure? Well, we can't find it. And... It, our, our society has allowed itself to become, particularly because of extreme and unnecessary and sometimes ignorant popular media, 
it's allowed too much judgment and criticism of those who falter. Mm-hmm. And that, again, that's one of the reasons why, to me, supporting people in prison is so important. Everyone else wants to just shut the door and say, well, justice is being served and may they have the most miserable of times. Uh, but eventually they all have to come out with you know, a few exceptions. We all have to come out. Mm. So do they come out as people you want to have as your neighbor or people you want to panic about? And that applies to when people make mistakes in public life, whoever they are, from prime ministers to people who run business organizations. People make mistakes, and we need the grace to allow them to admit a mistake and to come to reconciliation. I mean, we've just, let's say, celebrated, celebrated 25 years of the Good Friday mm. Agreement. Mm. At the heart of that was a, a man I got to know very, very, very well, Ian Paisley. Mm. Uh, the, the Ian Paisley, the dad. There is Ian Paisley MP now in the House yeah. Commons, but Ian Paisley, his dad, the Reverend Ian Paisley, who had an absolutely venomous take on life mm-hmm. about what he used to call the Shenners. Ah, <laughs> uh, Shenners. <laughs> it's a very good accent. Yes, that's, right. that's better than your American. I know. Well, I got to know him very well because I had to interview him a number mm. of times when I was a television presenter. Uh, and, I, I, and I remember one occasion so clearly where he came growling across from the House of Commons, across what's Abingdon Green, where we do interviews outside. Mm. And he was like a big burly bell. <laughs> <laughs> and then I asked him a question, and he answered, <laughs> like this. And he thought, oh my gosh, this man's going to eat me. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, he says, he said, have you finished now? And I, <laughs> and I said, I, said I, I have Mr. Paisley. And he goes, now tell me, Michael, how are you? Tell me, how's the family? What's going on? What? This is the pastoral man that's just come out all of a sudden. This is the Reverend Ian Paisley. So he had this showism, which was sure. deeply sincere. Mm. But it meant that when it came to building a relationship with Martin McGuinness, who, of course, was leading the IRA, he mm. could do it. Right. That's reconciliation in practice. Mm. That's allowing people to admit mistakes. The Queen going to shake hands yeah. with the joint leaders of the Stormont Assembly, one of whom, of course, was involved in crimes associated with her own family. That is letting people make mistakes and be forgiven. May I play the devil's advocate? Of course. <laughs> You're young. You're meant to play the devil's advocate. Go for it. That's a rep- re- representative of... Uh, sorry, I'm <laughs> um, I, what about people who would say that the word mistake is too... You're being too generous. What, if, what about when you sense that there's a real general lack of integrity, lack of, you know, when politics is seen as a career and as a self-promoting place, that, you know, that house is seen as a place... Um, of self-promotion what about when those things that you that you said earlier about the actual purpose of our of our parliament and the purpose of you and the house of lords to save the people what about when we feel like that is intentionally not the top priority and that does happen has happened and infuriates me as it infuriates Mm. you and you know I, I I would. I am a non-political member, but let me be political for a member, a moment. Mm-hmm. The huge lying deceit of mm-hmm. Brexit, the great disappointment it now represents, the uh, the reduction of our economy, the tensions about transport from the UK to the continent, the big queues 
at Easter trying to get across from Dover the irritations of passport controls that are not really necessary, but they're there to punish the, the frustrations of businesses that can't work as effectively as they used to. The tensions in Northern Ireland created by unthought through and unreasonable and illogical deals done just to look good at the moment. All of that was a deceit of lies. And it's blatantly clear to people now, since that referendum in 2016, all the indicators are now, if we had the same referendum, the majority of people, in fact, the latest poll says 62%, would say, stay in, don't you dare come out. (laughs) Because the promises were unreal and undeliverable, Mm. and they were not truthful. And we've seen such a turbulence in our politics as a result of that. Too many people jumping on the bandwagon thinking they had spiritual points to make about exiting the EU, which is just illogical nonsense. And when we need collaboration in the world, practical, cooperative partnerships, where we learn to work together. The United States at the moment is in a big showdown with China. Mm. Well, that's foolishness, because the truth is China holds America's debt and makes most of its technology products, including Apple products, in China. So let's be realistic and learn how to find one another in the space of common agreements and not actually stand there opposing and despising because of our dislikes. We've got to f- now, are there points when evil becomes blatantly apparent, like, for example, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the damage done, the lives destroyed, the country wrecked, the taking of land and space and office without justi- justification? and without approval or agreement from the international community. Yes, there are vile moments of history, wars and repugnant destruction of people's lives that have happened from slavery right now to the migration crisis. Those things are evil, and we have to speak against them, mm-hmm. act against them, and be clear in what we're pursuing as, as what should be a collaborative, cooperative, mm. common humanity space. But if, if so much of politics is going in that polarised direction, where it's really about all-out, war political yes winning a battle an argument rather than this collaborative effort of genuinely seeking the best for our culture how how do we push against that it feels like that is the way culture is going generally and and if if we go in the direction of the u.s kind of polarized sort of culture and politics uh can we see will we see the same happening here in, in our own political sphere and, you know, one of the sadnesses, Justin, you mentioned that about, about the U.S., and obviously I teach in the U.S., mm. and, I, and I see the U.S. intimately from the inside all the time, is that, sad to say, the church community has been at the core of the disruptive deceits involved in so much of one side yeah. mm. of the political tensions of the United States. When what it should have been about, and I go back to when Jesus said, when I was in prison, you visited me, instead of people having views about how to denigrate others, we should be finding ways to wash others' feet. To do, love the fact that the Pope every Easter washes the feet of Mm. prisoners in in St. Peter's Square and the edge of the Vatican. We should be finding ways to feed one another, to clothe one another, to provide food and drink and housing and accommodation. This this is not the social gospel. This is the gospel. Mm. These are the priorities that Jesus laid out for us. Now, if, if those who take church position whether it's the United States or or here, focused on doing the things that Jesus asked us to do, we can't be in disagreement with that. If Mm. I'm providing food for the hungry, are you going to grab it out of their mouths and throw it in the bin? 
No, of course you. I mean, you have to be a really vile mm. person mm. to do that. So if we did the basic things instead of the celebrity things, if we focused on the needs of the edges of society, I mean, the whole principle, biblical principle around tithing, in that that ten percent was taking the first ten percent of the product of the field, the first ten percent going to the poor. Mm-hmm. Well, we've lost all of that, yeah. and mm. too often it goes to the pastors, dare I say. Mm. And what is necessary is to go back to that emphasis that the resources given to us, the opportunities made available to us, are not so that we can, but so we can enable others to. Mm. Mm. Now, if we did that in political life, serve one another by... I mean, I personally believe that during the time of COVID, those two years of confusion... Mm. A lot of people, some people not believing, other people panicking, other people frightened, other people desperately affected, many people dying. What we needed were the best of our political minds to sit together. Mm. I would have, in fact, I did urge on Boris Johnson, then as Prime Minister, bring in Tony Blair, bring in Theresa May, bring in John Major, bring in Gordon Brown, sit around the table and discover together how to do better things better. Mm. Best things better. Because mm. after all, if you can get smart ideas from anywhere, why would you, why would you deny it? Because they're not your party. Yeah. That is irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Mm. Stop thinking party. Think solution. Mm. It's a real... I love the way you speak about politics. You really... Well, our podcast is called Reenchanting, and you really do re-enchant it you really do put, make the main thing the main thing again yes um and I, I i could listen to you talk about that all day but i want to very quickly get on to this other area that you're passionate about and have worked so hard about which is racial justice yes racial equality um you've been working in that field for an awful long time and i just wanted to get a quick sense from you as to how are things getting better? Are things getting worse? Is it not as simple of a question as that? How do you, um, you know, institutionally as well, how do you see um, things developing in that sphere? Well, that's always a sore point. Yeah. Um, uh, at the point at which we're recording this podcast, just a week ago yeah. was 30 years since the killing of Stephen Lawrence. And I, mm-hmm. I went to the Stephen Lawrence memorial service at St. Martin's in the field. And again, that emphasizes how important the church is institutionally Mm. for moments of celebration, the coronation, moments of memorial, the death of someone recognized for their great loss, Stephen Mm. Lawrence. And at that service, we were reminded harshly, quite rightly, by the former Archbishop of York, that these institutional practices which led to carelessness and disregard, led to the Metropolitan Police confusing the difference between perpetrators and those who are pained, Mm. and that these things remain institutionally incorrect. And, you know, we've, we've now had too many independent reports that tell us that the sort of institution of protection Mm -hmm. is actually sometimes the institution of oppression. And I was a commissioner in the Commission for Racial Equality for nine years. I'm happy to say appointed twice by a Conservative minister, twice by a Labour minister. So that tells you how neutral (laughs) I am. (laughs) They couldn't figure out which way I was going, and I wasn't going to let them figure out either. But um, that worked for nine years on the Commission for Racial Equality, which included the years when we worked with the government then, 
uh, on the bringing the Macpherson report to the, to the fore, which did state that racial institutionalism is embedded across so many areas of society. Mm-hmm. So if, you are, if you're young and black, and I'm definitely not young, obviously, <laughs> but if you're young and black, you are nine times more likely to be stopped and searched than if you are white. And what some of my friends who are young and black say is the difference between them, say, working in the city of London, in a finance institution, let's say a bank, mm-hmm. and a white colleague, is the white colleague can, they can both step out the door of the bank at the same time. The white colleague will know they're going to get home. Hmm. But the black colleague doesn't know that. Because they may well be stopped. They may well be thrown to the ground. They may actually, as has happened recently, be shot. Mm. Inadvertently, maybe, or deliberately by the police deciding that because of racial profiling or some suspicion. So have we solved the problems that relate to what happened 30 years ago? No. The Windrush generation came here, my parents were part of that, came here in the 1950s to serve, from the colonies to serve. And they served and then found when their service wasn't needed, they got profiled and told to go home. Mm -hmm. And they'd given their lives to be here. And now the Home Office is quibbling about payments and about reconciliations and some people were deported and their lives wrecked and shattered Mm. and they get no recompense and they died in destitution but they came here to drive buses and work in the NHS and push trolleys and make the country work after the war and that should have been upheld out of dignity but it is that is that difference is that colour difference still seen is that culture difference still seen yes it is absolutely it is I, I come across I mean I tell you Without naming the person, but this particular person is a nuclear scientist and works at one of the UK's nuclear power plants, which happens to be in the north of England, northwest of England, and drove down from the northwest of England to, to me, which is sort of in the Hertfordshire area, uh, down the bottom of the M1, and got stopped and searched because he was his number plate says, coming from up north. Hmm. Well... Does that happen to you when you go driving from south to north and north to south? <laughs> no. Yeah. Because he was a yeah. black man driving a decent car. But he's a nuclear scientist protecting the country. It's extraordinary. I, obviously, there's still that institutional sense then in which there is injustice and there yes. are things that haven't, haven't changed or haven't progressed as we would like them to have. At a personal level, I know, though, that you, you are a mentor to many young people black men and women who are maybe starting out in business or public life. Tell us about those friendships and relationships and, and where that's all come from yourself. Well, I could tell you about, um, say, wonderful Lorraine. Um, she's an amazing woman. She, uh, she leads the University Gospel Choir of the Year uh, every year. And it's been, I think, I think 11, 11 years now. And I've, I always go every time they have their big event and university choirs come and sing and perform and it's just the joy of coming and singing and being together and she's mm. created that which meant that she's found many great stars and many of those great stars have contributed to has britain got talent mm. uh, and simon cowell's outfit uh and she's just and she's working in the city of london and she works also in uh west african country of ghana uh, and she's just a remarkable woman full of insight and dedication and passion to drive a difference. Mm. And then I think of uh, someone like um, uh, someone like uh, Kenny, who's got a book coming out in a couple of months' time called That Peckham Boy, which has been 
published by Penguin. Mm-hmm. Little promotion there. <laughs> um, in fact, July the 13th. And, uh, <laughs> and it tells his story of having been wrongly incarcerated, uh, charged for crimes he had not committed, and spending six months in Feltham, and then a judge looking at this case and literally dismissing it on day two, saying there's no substance to this mm. case. But of course you get no recompense. Mm. You don't even get an apology. Six months of your life is taken away. And and so many of the other people I mentor have had up one guy up to 10 months. In fact, someone mm. I'm going to see soon in a prison in London has been two and a half years awaiting a trial. And I have to accept his innocence because the principle is innocent until proven guilty. So we've got a lot of, um, you know, guys who are uh, who come out of the criminal justice system. Uh, but at the other end, a lot who are in banking, finance, investment, a lot who are in engineering, creativity, technology. I mean, I'm surrounded by people who know about data that I do mm. not understand mm. uh, and about AI everything and chat box this <laughs> and that, 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 the next thing. And, and people who, who are creatives. Uh, and sportsmen and uh, football stars and rugby stars and uh, people who uh, are making institutions change in other parts of the world or investors uh, who own their own businesses, people with tons of wealth mm. and people with no wealth. Mm. And so the, the family of brothers and sisters that come together. So the wives also are very involved every year. Uh, but it is, a, it is a network of men who've chosen to identify how to find purpose, pursue Jesus, and support each other. Mm. And that's the three principles under which we seek to be together. Find purpose, pursue Jesus, and support one another. I feel like the relationship part of that is so key, though, because it's one thing to sort of say at a public level, uh, at an institutional level, we need to do this, we need to do that. But if it doesn't happen at a ground level as well, if people aren't, if people are still essentially living within their own demographics and not really getting to know people from any other community than their own then it feels like it's it's always going to be a sticking plaster and we're not so so how do we engage that kind of genuine relational where you you know different people from different backgrounds actually do understand and have some experience of each other's lives and so on Uh, well i think that is really important we were talking earlier on Mm. in this conversation about the old and the young (laughs) (laughs) we become best friends the young and the old (laughs) (laughs) needing to be in common space because again that's the picture in the book of job especially in job chapter 29 where talks very much about the the father and the grandfather standing up and Mm. well being stood up for and supporting the young people being silent in the presence of those with wisdom so we need that common space of now the, the family of believers should be the space in which that happens but the only way it really happens because it doesn't happen if you just turn up through the door of a church on a Sunday Mm. and then walk out because people don't relate Mm. the only way it happens is that gift of the spirit that nobody wants you know there's two gifts of the spirit that nobody wants (laughs) what are they (laughs) (laughs) well the the ones everybody wants are the flamboyant ones yes you know tongues healings prophecies because they make you look great and and there's nothing wrong with them I'm sure I'm sure if they're given by God there's nothing wrong with them but sometimes they're not given by God as we know (laughs) but (laughs) <laughs> the unflamboyant gifts are administration and hospitality. Mm. Mm-hmm. And those two, organizing yeah. to be hospitable and therefore being hospitable, which allows people to come together, eat together, 
break bread together. We talk about this breaking mm. bread together, mm. and then you know it's some terrible little wafer with some horrible <laughs> ribena. That's not. That is not breaking bread. Breaking bread was literally cracking open the bread and letting the dust go everywhere, and and sharing the conversation around food, which mm. is meant to be a gathering space, so that people can learn interesting things about one another. And you know, I never, I never ask the question, "What do you do?" Because if you ask that question, somebody will just give you a job title. Mm-hmm. Instead, I ask people the question, tell me about your life. Where might you have been and where mm-hmm. have you been? Mm-hmm. And what is it that interests you going forward? And then they talk about all sorts of things. And yeah. it's that opening up of the who we are mm-hmm. rather than the function we fulfill. And doing that over food... So whenever the guys gather around or the wives and the families gather around, it's always around eating. Yeah. And eating is very important. It's a biblical very important. principle. That we... I think it's my favorite biblical principle. Yes, it is. Mm. It's wonderful, isn't it? It is. Yeah. <laughs> Anyone who's not a Christian, you should be just because we love food so much. So, <laughs> African food, Caribbean food, All Singaporean food. noodles. Everything. Yes. <laughs> is, so is that, you've spoken about meeting in a table in that sense you also spoke about wanting to get all those political minds together around a yes. table is that again I, I sort of just keep coming back to this language I think because you demonstrate it so beautifully but this language of re-enchantment is that how you would propose re-enchanting our perception of the public life our perception of politics our perception yes. of citizenship and all of those things yes I, I would I would uh, mm. we, you know, let us let us sit in common spaces yeah and discuss and dialogue with each other I, w- I will never I never forget uh, when I was with KPMG many years ago and it w- one of the delights of my job was traveling all over the world with the business and helping to encourage the business to be the best of itself to the country the community the city beyond it and and it was brilliant and I loved it and on one of my many visits to Australia <laughs> many I loved Australia but long uh, one of my many visits to Australia, um, I went from Sydney to Darwin mm. in in the north, and that is the epicenter of what they prefer now to say are first Australians. You know, we would say Aboriginal people; mm. they would say first Australians because mm-hmm. they were there first. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, and I remember this occasion where they told me they'd arranged the business had arranged for me to meet with the elders and leaders of the first Australian community in Darwin. I thought that's wonderful. Yeah. They said, you've got to wear a suit because they expect you to come dignified. Mm-hmm. So I turned up dignified, and there they all were, sitting around in a circle on the floor. Not on the floor of a building. Outside, <laughs> in the dust. <laughs> there you were in your nice suit. They were there me in my nice suit. And they, they literally took my hand and they pulled me down and said, sit in this space with us. And this big circle. Mm. And you were sitting in this space together and literally passing bread around Mm. and the hours pass many hours with no agenda but just know you Mm. hear you hear what you're thinking where your feeling is coming out how you say it what they're saying what I'm looking what what they're looking what I'm Mm. saying and the beauty of that traditional cultures is of course, in the West, we've to large extent lost it because everything has an agenda mm. and a timeline. It must be done <laughs> in this way. And in other cultures, particularly Southern and Eastern cultures, it's all about who 
is the person who's it's still about being a human being rather than a human doing that's right totally yes discovering the heartbeat (laughs) that's a good phrase yes (laughs) i want to know what the heartbeat of the Mm. person is and i I love the fact too when i when i went to japan for the first time for the business they said they gave me all these lessons about bowing and all that which is all very valuable because japanese people do Mm -hmm. bow an awful lot and it's lovely the place is crystal clean and it's just an amazing set of cities to go to. But one thing they said to me, said, do not expect a Japanese business person to complete an agenda and therefore a deal in the way you think in the mm-hmm. West because they don't behave like that. Oh. They, they, they will go through the process of conversation about the arrangement and then you need to drink together mm-hmm. and eat together and then come back to it and talk a bit more and may, so maybe your agenda, which you thought was one and a half hours, is actually <laughs> one and a half days. And you need to keep going around this until they are content mm. that you've heard them mm. and they've heard you. Then you can agree. Mm. We need that. You know, peace in Northern Ireland came about because political leaders here to their credit, and political operators in Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland walked together in gardens and spent time listening to each other. As we come to the end of the podcast, as Belle mentioned, we're called the Reenchanting Podcast. And today's episode has really been about reenchanting public life, politics, leadership, and so on. You've given us a great example of someone who has spent their life aiming to do that by bringing people to the table. Uh, And it's your faith that's motivated so much of that. Obviously, you share those halls of power with many people who don't share your faith. Mm. How do we encourage that re-enchantment of public life with the Christian vision that actually did found these these hallowed halls and, and buildings and so on? even if people don't necessarily share, share the faith that, that, that it originated in? How do we kind of bring that sense of the importance of togetherness, forgiveness, sharing a common life together? How do, how do we bring that, how do we overcome the, the public polarisation of politics and, and get back to that, that core principle you've been talking about? Well, we have to elevate our political conversations beyond the immediacy of the moment and see the urgency of the world beyond us. You know, as we sit here now, we are, we are watching the breakdown of Sudan and fearful conflict. Mm. Now, we can sit here saying, oh, thank goodness we got the Brits out. <sighs> the RAF did a fantastic job at last and all the Brits are safe. Okay, what about the Sudanese? You see, if our conversation stops at what we have gained, you always get... Which government is going to go to the public in an election and say, you know something, growth is not the target. (laughs) (laughs) Communitarianism is. The more we can conserve, the more we can common share, the less we can waste. I like to go and buy things from second-hand shops, and I find people who think I'm mad... (laughs) because I buy furniture from second-hand shops and shoes from second-hand shops. What's wrong with that? It's wonderful. Mm. Let's reuse what is available to us. Don't throw anything away until it is absolutely threadbare and <laughs> gone. 
keep on wearing it, keep on using it, stop consuming. Now, if we could have a political conversation that isn't about how do we get richer, but how do we all get better? Mm. So we share wealth better. Now, yes, does that mean higher taxes? Probably. Probably. But it doesn't mean, say, higher taxes on the poor or the middle. It means higher taxes where the taxes can be better paid. That's not a socialist vision. That's a justice mm. vision. Is that if, if I'm very well in a, enabled, I can help you to be better enabled. So thank God for very rich people. <laughs> thank God for them. And we should all aim to be very rich people. <laughs> then we can pay more tax and give more away. You know, I say... That's I, so interesting. <laughs> <laughs> And if you are very rich, Michael will come knocking any moment yes. now. Yes. I mean, you know, the, two, the, the wonderful thing about, it's often said, the, the, the richest place in the world is the graveyard. And why is that? Because everybody goes to their grave with their dreams that they never fulfilled. And secondly, they, whatever assets they have are lost hmm. at that moment. You can't take it with you. You can't take anything with you. Nothing, nothing, nothing. So we need a political vision. And I'm part of a movement... I'm part of two movements. One Young World, which is all about empowering the under 35-year-olds, which I know you fit into. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm afraid I Walsh don't, but, but Bell yeah, still Bell, you fit into it. Yes. Uh, <laughs> empowering the under 35-year-olds to have a vision of the world around the sustainable development goals. Mm. To be thinking about how we really end extreme poverty and hunger and how we really empower freedom of expression and dignity mm. where, where it is missing. That's one young world. Mm. And this year we're meeting in Belfast in recognition of there'll be about 2,500, 3,000 young people there present. And I've been, on, been a board member of that organization for the last 12 years. And then Anthropy, which is a new coming together around at the Eden Project. Last year we had 1,000 people. This year we're going to have 2,000 people. What is Anthropy? It's a vision about a Britain which is based around the values which will help us collaborate. Mm which is what anthropy is all about. How do, how do we come together around a vision, help us collaborate, which is not the divide between Labour and Conservative or Liberal, between left and right, but what is the priority before us? Let me go back to Sudan. You have conflict in the world. And remember, we've witnessed conflict in the United Kingdom. We talked about Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland, Ireland and the UK. We've, talked, we've, had end, we've had lots of conflict. Why do people have conflict? They have conflict because they're, we're warring over land, or assets, hmm. protectionism, and we need communitarianism. And the best of all capitalism is when we can make things achieve the highest levels of efficiency and profitability, and then bring others into the circle so they can benefit. Well, thank you so much for sharing some time with us. You need to get back to your oh yes your your job across the road, <laughs> Parliament. <laughs> But it's been wonderful to share an hour or so with you, Michael. Thank, Thank you. you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you. You've been listening to the Reenchanting podcast. In these early episodes, it makes a huge difference if you can rate and review the podcast wherever you are listening, and it helps others to discover the show. You can also find more episodes, articles and resources at seenandunseen.com. See you next time.